0: Psalm 22, this is the last few verses of Psalm 22. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall, proclaim, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. God makes promises to Abraham that he's going to rescue the world that Adam and Eve screwed up through him and his family. He's going to give him land. He's going to give him blessing, which is shorthand for salvation. And he's going to give him offspring. And the offspring is what's going to do it, not Abraham. Abraham doesn't really know what this means. But he believes God, and God credits to him as righteousness. These promises weren't just for Abraham and Abraham's family, though. These promises were for all the nations in you All the nations of the world will be blessed, God promises to Abraham. So almost immediately we see this becoming fulfilled. We see God paying this out by giving Abraham the foreign nations. Psalm 22 talks about this. Psalm 22 is magnificent. And I can tell you we're going to come back to Psalm 22 on the Sunday that we read and think about the crucifixion of Jesus Psalm 22, the whole thing is going to be our psalm. So I don't want to go into it too much now, except to point out at the end of Psalm 22, and you can look at this with me, there's this promise that the suffering one of Psalm 22 is going to rule over all the nations. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. I say this before, I'll say it again. This is a gutsy, gutsy thing for a psalmist around 1000 BC to write down on paper. Because that country, Israel in 1000 BC, the country that David rules over, has no business at all with any sort of imperial pretensions. It has no right to believe that it's gonna be anything other than just a minor player stuck between the great powers around it. Egypt in the south and the Hittites in the north and then the Assyrians in the north and then the Babylonians in the north. It's just kind of like, the battleground where these two, where the the great empires do meet to do battle, but it's not really big and powerful. And yet David is insisting that our God will someday rule over the whole world. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, all humans, even the one who could not keep himself alive. This starts to get paid out in Joshua chapter 2, which we read at the very beginning of our readings, the story of Uh, Rahab and the spies. God comes to, um, God God tells Israel, I'm going to give you the nations. I'm going to start with this piece of property here on the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Go in and conquer it. Those people are to be conquered. We'll talk more about this in a second. One way or the other, willingly or unwillingly, God is going to conquer them. Rahab chooses to be conquered willingly. Rahab recognizes that the God of Israel is the one true God, and submits to him against all the gods and goddesses that she had grown up with, against her whole worldview, against the system of the city that she lived in, she turns her back on that city and worships the one true God. Those who don't submit to God are, are destroyed, are killed. And I, I can't really talk about this without asking the question, or answering the question, isn't it offensive to believe in a God who would kill people who don't believe in him. And I, I know, I, 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 I've talked about this in here before, I know. I just be patient with this. I, I'm going to do it again. Uh, first of all, this happens to all of us, right? In Genesis chapter 3, God tells Adam and Eve, if you rebel against me, you'll die. We've rebelled against God, and he's going to kill all of us eventually. Every single one of us in this room is going to die That's not natural. We can pretend it's natural as the sort of way to cope with it, you know. Well, everybody dies. Everybody's got to go sometime, right? It's actually God saying, this is what happens. You've rebelled against me, and this is the punishment, is death. Second of all, though, God sends an army of Israelites to wipe out people who disbelieve in him, and I know belief in retributive justice is offensive, On the surface, it's easy to be like, I can't believe in the God to do this. But let me just encourage everyone in here, those of you who are unbelievers especially for whom this kind of thing is particularly shocking if if you haven't read this sort of thing before, is that you really don't have a problem with retributive justice. You don't. Nobody, Nobody really does. If I am standing on the street corner, I'll give you an example. If I'm standing on the street corner and somebody jaywalks across the street, would it be appropriate for me to try to kill that person? The answer is, all the other no? No, you don't have to answer, that's silly. Uh, the answer is no. And the reason why, you all, know, you, you all know why, is because, like, jaywalking on the books might be illegal. It's probably not immoral. <laughs> it's not that, it doesn't, it's not hurting anybody. It's not that big of a deal. What if somebody jaywalks and then shoves an old lady down would it be right to try to kill them then? The answer would be no. It's not right to cross the street and shove people to the ground, especially people who are, can't defend themselves. But that's not worthy of the retributive justice of death. There's so other kind of retributive justice there. What if somebody crosses the street and tries to kill one of your kids? then is it okay? See what I'm saying? The problem is not, we don't have a problem with retributive justice. The problem is the question of how much wickedness is allowed before retributive justice is okay or necessary. And when we say, well, God, it's kind of over the top. Why would, he, they just don't believe in it? Why would he kill him? This is so pagan and barbarous. And the problem is, is we just think that they're jaywalkers and they're really not what we know about the Canaanites is that they were deeply, deeply depraved. I know it's an old-fashioned word, depraved, but they were genuinely depraved. Again, I, this is, I think I've done this in Bible, so I don't know if I've done this in the sermon. If anybody's seen Mel Gibson's movie, Apocalypto, this, this for me, like, really, I, I, I watched it once, and it was like, I don't know how, when, a long time ago, but it, it really brought it home. Like, you, you, can, you can know about human sacrifice. Mesoamericans did human sacrifice. Okay, sacrifice of humans. When you see it like with, with, with Hollywood-level production portrayed, somebody dragged against their will and their chest cut open, you know that what's going on here is not, oh, it's just an interesting culture. They, have, they, they do their things their way. I'm sure they have different kinds of food than we eat. They probably listen to different kinds of music than we listen to. We don't kill people to appease pagan deities. They did, it's okay. Nobody would say that when you watch Apocalypse. You would say, that's evil and it should be stopped. Child sacrifice especially. We know from the Old Testament, we know from archeology span and history that child sacrifice was an important part of Canaanite religious worship. In the Old Testament specifically, the god Molech is condemned. Worship of the god Molech is condemned. I can't can't remember again if, if I've told you guys about this. We have, uh, from, from historians, we know how Molech was worshipped, and in at least some cases, Molech was worshipped as an idol. An idol is kind of with a bull head, with its hands stretched out. It was a metal idol. Its, its insides were hollow. Large fires were stoked inside of it so that the metal would be heated to super hot temperatures. And people would take their infants and place it in the hands of of the idol so that the infant would be burnt to death, not by fire, but in the hot metal. Roman historians tell us that some people, that, that, uh, that uh, some people paid money to poor people to take their kids because they didn't want their kids to do it. And the poor people felt like we, have to, we, we need this money to survive and would sell their kids to the rich people to, uh, as substitutes um, to be placed into the hands of Molech to be burned to death. When the authorities found out, they said, "This isn't good enough. You have to sacrifice your own kids. The God demands your own kids for this." This is what God tells them to wipe out. He says, I, I, don't, "I don't think that we have a problem with this. Any more than any of us probably have a problem with the Allies doing everything they could to stop Nazi Germany. There are some things that demand retributive justice. And if we say, well, this is barbarous of God to do this, it's only because we think of sin, their sin, as more like jaywalking, and it's not. It's actually deeply, deeply evil. But it's not necessary. Rahab, for one, avoided this by repenting and saying, the gods I've worshiped are fake gods. The way I've lived my life is a fake way of life, and I now submit to the one true and living God. This is what she says in Joshua 2. Uh, Right in the middle there, she tells him, we've heard about you, we've heard about Yahweh. She uses the word Yahweh, God's specific name. She's not talking about gods in general. She knows there's a gazillion gods in the world. She certainly worships some of them there in Jericho. But she mentions Yahweh, the covenant God of Abraham specifically, and says, we know he's strong. She says in verse 11, "Uh, there's no spirit left in any man because of you for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above, And on the earth beneath. She confesses that the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Creator God, the covenant God of Israel, is the one and only true God in heaven and earth. And because of that, she's saved. See, she's not saved by anything else besides just repentance and believing in the one true God. She's not saved by her ethnicity. It's not the requirement is not to become Jewish, she's a Canaanite afterwards. She's not saved by her good behavior. After all, she's a whore. What she's saved by is, I believe your God's the right God, and my gods, my old gods, were fake gods, and she's rescued. She's saved. This is what it comes down to. The blessings of Abraham are dependent completely on the covenant activity of the God of Israel rescuing people like Rahab, like me and you. Rahab, of course, this is not the end of her story. Rahab is not some sort of like, well, you repented, so we've got to save you. Rahab becomes a very intrinsic part of the story of Jesus. Rahab gives up her life of prostitution. She marries a man named Salmon. They have a kid named Boaz. Boaz is the grandfather of David the king, who is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. Her name is listed in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. She's not some sort of outsider. She's more insider than just about anybody else. And all that it took was your God is the one true God and I repent and I believe in him. Why do Christians, to circle back to this question in light of Rahab's uh, conversion, why do we now reject retributive justice? Like, why do Christians not go and attack Glenn Carbon and say repent or be destroyed? The answer is uh, sometimes they do, not with Glenn Carbon, but with Nazi Germany, Many Christians did. Many Christians said the genocide that's happening against the Jews is worth us going and doing whatever we can, including giving up our own lives to stop it. But second of all, the reason why the church doesn't do this anymore is because something has happened in between Rahab and us which completely changes the game, and that is the assassination of God. God becomes a human being and is lynched. God becomes a human being and dies. This brings us to the gospel reading, and if you'll look at that with me, we're not gonna unpack it, but we'll look at a couple of texts in here. Starting with verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice while he's being crucified saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is a quote from Psalm 22. That means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God becomes a human being. Jesus comes to earth specifically so that he can be forsaken by his father not because his father's angry with him or hates him, but because his father desperately loves him and desperately wants to win sisters and brothers for him. He becomes forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. He's the only person in the history of the universe who's ever said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was the truth. Those genuinely forsaken by God have not been allowed to call him my God. Those of us, me, and you who are believers who call him my God have never been forsaken by him. But Jesus called him my God because he was and says he was forsaken by him because he was so that you and I would never be forsaken by him. Jesus experienced all the retributive justice of all the sins in the history of the universe so that we wouldn't have to, so that no more Jerichoites, Jerichoans, people who lived in Jericho would die Jesus took that penalty for him, and now this changes everything, but it doesn't change the fact that he's still conquering. He's still, like Jericho, he's still conquering Glen Carbon. He is still winning people like Rahab, who did not know him and did not believe in him, back to himself. He does that at the crucifixion. Look at the very last line. There's a centurion and those who are with him keeping watch over Jesus. They saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Truly, Jesus is the Son of God. This is a conversion like Rahab's. A conversion into believing that Jesus, this man, who's dying right in front of them, dying because he himself nailed him to that cross, is the Son of God. Now, what does he mean, the Son of God? That's a weird confession for a Roman centurion to be making. Has he, been, has he been studying Israel's scriptures? Does he know about the promise of the Son of God from Psalm 2 and other texts, for instance? Probably not, maybe, but probably not. Actually, the, the, the language of Son of God is not just Jewish. It's not just biblical. It's actually Roman. For about 40 years prior to this, everybody in the Roman Empire knew who the Son of God was. It was the guy whose picture was on the coin, and around the rim of the coin, it said, this is Divi Filius. This is the son of God. Julius Caesar is assassinated in 44 BC. His adopted son, uh, Augustus, becomes emperor a few years later and proclaims his adopted father, Julius Caesar, God, and names himself then son of God. Every Caesar after that, as a way to honor their father, but really, to make divine claims for themselves, would title themselves, one of their titles was Divi Filius, Son of God. This Roman centurion knows exactly who the Son of God is. It's the guy he works for. It's Caesar. Why would he want to be called Son of God? Well, the Roman, the, 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 actually, the Greco-Roman worldview works like this. Think of an hourglass. And in the hourglass on top are all the divinities all the most powerful beings in the universe. And everybody in the hourglass part below is like me and you, just normal human beings, kind of muddling through and living our lives. And there's a portal in between the world of the divinities and your world, my world, and that portal is Caesar. He is part divine, at least he calls himself that, son of God, and he's human too. The centurion has known, he's known his whole life, that if I want access to the transcendent, if I want access to power, if I want access to pleasure, if I want access to money, if I just want to like go home and be able to lay my head on my pillow at night and not be scared to death for my life, I must submit to the portal. I must submit to the Son of God. And he's probably always believed in this guy. Maybe not necessarily likes him. He might not like the system, He might resent having somebody over him who tells him what to do, but he knows this is the name of the game. If I want access to something bigger than myself, I have to live in this man's world. I have to submit to Divi Filius, Caesar Tiberius, the son of God. But now something weird has happened. He's just executed this Jewish construction worker, put him on the cross. The man has said a few words, but not a lot. There's been an earthquake, And suddenly, somehow, this man looks at this guy who's dying, bleeding to death right in front of him, and says, the worldview I've had up to this point is not working. This is actually what I've been looking for my whole life. My old son of God is not really the son of God. This one really is the son of God. That's what he means when he says this is truly the son of God. He's converted just like Rahab has. He looks at In Rahab's case, it was strength and power, the power to defeat the Egyptians. Christians are sometimes criticized for like being power hungry, being aggressive, being authoritarian, bossing people around, insisting that their worldview is the right one. The centurion though looks at something completely different, something weak, something dying, a slave man, but Also, just somehow, just as powerful. This is what scares, so this is, uh, Christians are sometimes accused of being power hungry. They're just as often accused as being weak and ineffectual. This was uh, uh, Nietzsche's big problem with the Christian church is that it symbolized all that was wrong about the world. The unwillingness to grasp at power So you can't please everybody, right? This is a good clue that something good is going on is when this guy on this side of the bar says, all you care about is being power hungry and controlling people. And the guy on the other bar says, you're just so weak and useless. This is what Nietzsche said about the Christian church in his book, Antichrist. Christianity remains to this day the greatest misfortune of humanity, he says. The Christian movement was from the start no more than a general uprising of all sorts of outcast and refuse elements. And thus... The majority became master. Democracy, with its Christian instincts, triumphed because all the powerful people were like stripped of their power and Christianity insisted like weak people are just as valuable as strong people. Nietzsche hates this. Christianity was not national. It wasn't based on race. It appealed to all the varieties of men disinherited by life. It had its allies everywhere. Christianity has the rancor of the sick at its very core, The instinct against the healthy, against health. Everything that is good, constituted, proud, gallant, and above all beautiful, gives offense to its ears and eyes. Again, Nietzsche says, I remind you of Paul's priceless saying, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world, the foolish things of the world, the base things of the world, and things which are despised. This was the formula. Everything that suffers, everything that hangs on the cross is divine, and Nietzsche hates it. Well, they can't both be right, except for maybe they both are right. And maybe the centurion realized in that moment they're both right. That the weakest thing that he'd ever seen, this man who he had the power to nail to a board and kill, is also the portal to the transcendent, is also truly the son of God. This is the secret of Christianity, is that the weakest thing in the world is the most powerful thing in the world that the death of God is the ugliest thing in the world and the most beautiful thing in the world. It's the most unholy thing in the world and it's the holiest thing in the world. It's the weakest thing in the world and simultaneously, it's the strongest thing in the world. And so this morning I ask you guys, what's your portal to ultimate happiness and fulfillment? What's your son of God? Who's the boss that you've you've been working for? Who have you imagined to be the portal to the transcendent for you. Because whether you're a Christian or whether you're an agnostic or an atheist, every single one of us has fake gods. We have portals. It would be a lie to say, oh, it's just God, it's just Jesus. Hopefully it is, but unfortunately, all too often, the flesh being what it is, there are things that we look to and say, that must be there, I must reach that portal, or I'm not safe, or I must reach that portal, or I'm not comfortable, or I'm not happy or I'm not saved if we want to use religious language. Maybe it's a, a I, I realize that now I'm lowering the tone here because I want us to, I'm about to lower the tone, but I want to do it because like, I want you and I to realize that the false gods that we worship are nothing better than the Canaanite gods that Rahab and her friends worshipped. Nothing actually less pagan than worshiping the Caesar who sits in, Jerusalem, who sits in Rome. What about the gods of power. If I, can just get the, if I can just get the garage organized, I'll be at peace. I'll be happy. So, Is there anything wrong with organizing your garage? Absolutely not. But you all know what it's like to live with somebody or to be friends with somebody who's obsessed with the organization of their garage. It becomes the thing that their emotions rise and fall on. It becomes the thing that they think about in the morning when they wake up. I've got to make sure everything's in place there. And if it's not, they can't sleep at night. At that point, I know you're not trying to get to heaven through your organized garage, but you are trying to get the comfort and the peace that comes with control out of your garage, in which point you have made power your son of God. What about the power of finances? I'm looking at my uh, IRAs, and if the stock market's going up and it's getting bigger, I'm doing okay. But when it goes down, when it goes down more than a few days, when it goes down more than a few weeks, then I start to get nervous. Is there anything wrong? with investing money and saving for the future? Absolutely not. In fact, you probably should do that if you can. But what is wrong is believing that the stock market can get me to the transcendent. The stock market can get me the kind of comfort that only Jesus can get me. The stock market can provide the hope that I should be looking for in Jesus, but I'm not. What about the gods of acceptance? If I could just get back together with that one person. That relationship was so good, I wish it hadn't ended. If I could just get back with them, everything will be okay. You've turned that person into a son of God. You've turned that experience into something that can comfort you and save you and give you hope. And all of these fake sons of God, all of these fake deep idols, which all of us have, and all of us struggle with, and maybe those three are yours. Maybe they're not, but hopefully you heard the echoes of whatever yours is in those three. They're all powerless to save and must be abandoned. At some point, the soldier is going to come to you like he came to Rahab and say, turn over the men you're hiding. And you're going to be faced with a choice. And the choice is this. I can turn these men over and not be killed and might lose out, on following the one true God and be at risk at being destroyed for rebelling against him. Or I can protect these men and I can turn my back on the world that I've always known and believed in, the world I've always gotten hope from, the world that I always thought provided me with the path to success. And trust the one true creator God in Jesus Christ for his path to success. May God allow us to make the decision that Rahad made May God consistently by the power of his word and his Holy Spirit and by the power of his sacraments allow us to choose him. Which God do you wanna serve? Do you wanna serve the gods who demand you sacrifice to to, to satisfy them? Or do we wanna serve the God who sacrifices his son to satisfy us? Do we wanna serve the fake sons of God or do we wanna serve the one true son of God? Amen. stir up in our heart's faith for you. We cannot stir up in our heart's decision to serve you and follow you. Give us the same vision of you that Rahab saw. Give us the same vision of you that the centurion saw. You, God, human, broken, bloodied, crucified for us, taking upon yourself all the retributive justice that we deserved. Fill our hearts with the glory and the power and the majesty of that most unglorious and weak seen and drive our hearts to you. Fill us up with yourself. Father, make your son Jesus, our son of God. We pray this in his name. Amen.